Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to episode two of the Snooker Scene podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This is a special edition looking at snooker in the 1970s. I'm sure a lot of people listening either weren't born or, or perhaps don't know too much about how the game evolved and became the professional circuit that we know and love today. One man who does know that, of course, is Clive Everton, who started Snooker Scene back in 1971, and it's still going strong 44 years later. Clive, the snooker of the 1970s. Well, I guess before we get to the 70s, we've got to talk about the game before that because uh, it had a we had a professional world championship, but that died basically, didn't it, in the 50s and was revived on a sort of challenge basis. But it wasn't until 1969 that it went open again. No promoter was prepared to stage the world championship between 1957 and 1964. It just wasn't worth it. There was no television then, no sponsorship. Uh, and there were only four or five active professionals who spent their time giving club exhibitions when they could get them. Uh, Rex Williams got the World Championship uh, going again on a challenge basis, and then uh, in the 1968-9 season, uh, John Player, uh, who um, were in the vanguard of um, sports sponsorship by tobacco companies, uh, they sponsored the event which was restored to um, a proper tournament basis but in those days each match lasted a week and the championship lasted a, a whole season and, and that's, those were the days <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, that's how it remained um, uh, up to and including uh, 1972 when of course Alex Higgins uh, uh, won, won the championship it took him 11 months to do it from first match to last uh, but that was so successful, so well attended, and it was clear that snooker was starting to, to offer the, the public uh, something new, uh, that in 1973, uh, a company called West Nally, who were sports sponsorship specialists, um, they staged um, at the World Championship uh, at the City Exhibition Halls, Manchester, uh, over a fortnight on, in a multi-table situation, which wasn't quite as well organised uh, as uh, the World Championship uh, later became, certainly not when it moved to the Crucible, um, but uh, th they got it going again on a proper tournament basis and the 73 event was, was won by Reardon, as was 1974 um, at um, 
City Exhibition Halls, Manchester. So if you were a snooker professional, say in the mid-60s, well, could you make any sort of living at all, or was it just slim pickings? Very slim pickings indeed. It, it was only uh, club exhibitions uh, and an occasional uh, television gig, which um, Joe Davis played until 1964, and Grandstand, which was still in black and white, uh, and was, was, was live in those days, the Saturday afternoon sports programme, that they, they would have snooker as a standby uh, for um, the other events which were dependent on the weather. Uh, and it was also used as a sandwich between um, uh, races at uh, Campton Park or Newbury or, or, or such, and the, the players were under strict, or, strict orders to complete the frame in the allotted time. We could, we could possibly do with that these days, actually. But, uh, but so, so, so of course that was in black and white. But then in 1969, the new colour service had come in, uh, BBC Two, and there was a program, Pop Black, which came along, which showcased the the game on a weekly basis, half hour program. And I bet the players couldn't believe their luck, could they? That the eight pl- the original players who played in it, because suddenly they had a national profile, a platform. They'd never had anything like it before. Um, They became well-known faces and their their exhibition bookings shot up. And they could charge more for them. Absolutely. Pop Black, um, it it, it sort of, I think it looked on rather quaintly now, but we shouldn't underestimate the the importance of it to the development of the game because it it proved to the BBC that people would watch snooker if they they broadcast it. Yes, although the received wisdom remained that they would only watch it in short doses. No one imagined initially that they would watch it for hours at a time. Let's talk then about some of the players at the time uh, around the turn of the, the 1970s. I guess the two big hitters were John Spencer and Ray Reardon. Spencer won the world title in 1969. Reardon won his first in, in 1970. Opposites, weren't they? Different sort of people. They didn't necessarily always get on, but uh, they, they both had their strengths. Talk about John Spencer, what sort of player he was. Well, he was very exciting when he first came into the game. Uh, he, he was playing deep screw shots from distance that none of the... Um, None of the current generation, the, the generation which was then current, were playing. Um, uh, but and like like Ray Reardon, he, he got a very good amateur career behind him. He would won the um, English Amateur Championship and been in, in two other finals. Um, Reardon had won the, the the English Championship and indeed the Welsh uh, six times. Um, that they uh, turned professional pretty late in life because there was no professional game to 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 uh, to make it worthwhile but uh, the holiday camps were starting to engage professionals to 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 play exhibitions the exhibition market was was uh, flourishing certainly more than it was in in the 60s so it was it was perceived that it was just about possible to make a decent living even without tournament play because nobody was counting on that not mm. at the time do you, I mean, it's difficult when you're living through a time to, to sort of appreciate the way things are changing, but do you think they saw themselves as sort of pioneers? Spencer, the first world champion of, of the sort of the Open era, and he was a man of first as well, wasn't he? He won the first at the Crucible, he won various, the first Masters as well he won. Do, do you think he, he appreciated the sort of importance of it, or, or would it have dawned on him maybe years later? 
it wouldn't have dawned on him uh, at mm. the time. He was too busy trying to make a living, <laughs> <laughs> as they all were. I think, I think it was only in retrospect that they saw themselves as pioneers, which, of course, they were. Mm. I remember he told quite a funny story about his sort of naivety. He wasn't sort of that worldly when he started out. And when he and Reardon got to the English amateur final, John would have won the northern section and Reardon the southern section. The person who was doing the programme asked them for pictures of themselves. And, and so Ray Reardon sent one in of him suited and booted in, in his playing gear with the queue in hand and Spencer just thought oh, I'll just send them a picture so he, he just got the, the nearest picture he could find which was him in his swimming trunks on holiday <laughs> so, so, so he sent it off and they're, they're in the programme he's Reardon in his playing gear and, and John Spencer in his swimming trunks but, but in a way that, 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 that reflects on Reardon as well because he, he, he in, in some ways was kind of to, to me from my age growing up watching he almost felt like the sort of the first television professional in a way he was kind of the headmaster figure in some ways at that time wasn't he he modeled himself on on joe davis how he should uh, deport himself in 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 public and uh, there's no doubt about it he he was uh, a great ambassador for the game and a great player i mean six six world titles in the 1970s now there weren't as many professionals as there are now but you've still got to win those tournaments and there were some tough players to play against Oh yes, uh, and uh, I, re- I remember first up the seventy the seventy three uh, semi semi final. Uh, John Spencer was six up with nine to play going into their final session in the semi final. Reardon beat him by by the odd frame, and then Reardon was seven nil down to Eddie Charlton in the final, uh, and in the end beating quite handily. But that was best of seventy five. Mm. Um, so uh, right right from the start, there, there, there were gripping matches, and, and of course, this, among amongst the people that this impressed um, was Nick Hunter of, um, uh, of of the BBC, who was given snooker as one of his responsibilities, and and he saw the the, the drama which these matches were producing hour by hour, um, and rather later. Uh, after the 76 championship um, it, it was he who persuaded his superiors at the BBC to um, cover snooker from the crucible um, the semi-finals and final in 77 and then as we all know it switched to um, daily coverage of every ball uh, and um, it's remained so ever since mm. and I think Ray Reardon he seemed to sort of understand the power of television there was a documentary that BBC Wales did a couple of years ago when he turned 80 and they, they referenced the fact that you quite often see him sort of shrugging and, and even looking at the cameras and he said yeah I did it deliberately because I knew I'd, I'd get the audience on my side sort of thing and he, he used television as it as what it is really which is a shop window he, he seemed to kind of understand that where maybe not every not every player did yeah it, I think it was all part of it of being an ambassador for the game mm. and he, his career as well he had real longevity I mean he, he was still playing well into his 50s and, and, and at a high level I mean he got to the world final 1982 very nearly won it only lost 18-15 to Alex Higgins and I think he was in the semis in, in 85 as well he, he just kept going and going until of course inevitably when the game opened up and there was a flood of professionals he, he had to sort of walk away but he, he's never he doesn't seem to have shown any sign of 
really ever sort of regretting hanging up his queue, even though he, he probably could have sold it on a little bit longer. The only the only thing that uh, he would have regretted, I think, was not being able to start earlier because there was no mm. professional game to, to to join. He was nearly forty mm. by the time he it was worthwhile to turn professional, and before that he was a miner. He was buried in a roof fort for six hours once, yeah. and then he was a policeman, got commended twice for, for bravery. Um, uh, it, it's not like uh, it is today when um, virtually all the players on the circuit have never done anything else but mm. play snooker. It's true, isn't it? And I guess it gave the players of that era some perspective. They were working usually in, in pretty low-paid jobs, and OK, there wasn't that much money in snooker, but the, the money started to come into the game. And uh, they, they were the sort of pioneers. The, the, the other sort of star player of the 70s, we mentioned him briefly, of course, Alex Higgins. Um, can you remember your sort of first encounter? Would you have heard of him before you sort of saw him play? Oh, oh the, 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 there were all sorts of stories coming in about you know, this, this exceptionally fast uh, um, lad from Northern Ireland was making, making centuries in four minutes and uh, all, all this. And, uh, of course, he, he won the... He won the um, the, the British Amateur Team Championship for Belfast YMCA, more or less single-handed. He, he won the he won the Northern Ireland Amateur Championship, so he, he wasn't he, he wasn't completely unknown. But then he came over to live uh, in, um, in 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 England and uh, got involved, you know, in in the professional scene. And uh, uh, he, he, cer he certainly was he. To, if I may make my bid for the understatement of the year, he certainly broke the mould as far as, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> as, as far as as far as uh, professional snooker players were concerned. He seemed to, I mean, he's one of those people, he sort of almost, you feel that every story about him is probably true, but one of the things that I think that, that certainly was true about him was he, he never craved any kind of acceptance, did he? He just, he was who he was, and if he didn't like it, tough. Yeah, he 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 was anti-establishment. Never wanted to be accepted. He just wanted to go uh, his own his own way. Um, could be extremely irritating or annoying at times. But every Higgins match in a, in a decent sized arena was was an emotional experience. Mm. What was it like at the nineteen seventy two World Championship? I know you were there here in here in Birmingham. What what was that like? Well, it was extraordinary. Um, it was a week's match, uh, afternoon and evening sessions. Um, it was during um, uh, a, a, a week of power cuts. And on one evening, they had to play in front of a, with a mobile generator uh, illuminating the table. I thought, well, they can't see, they can't. Possibly, mm. <laughs> they can't possibly <laughs> play to their usual standard. Uh, but uh, in fact, the first three frames took only forty minutes. It seemed to make no difference at all. Higgins got. Um, I remember the Thursday evening session, which he won six 0 played absolutely brilliantly, and that was the margin by by which he by which he won. But uh, it, it was it was extraordinary stuff. The place was absolutely packed. There were no. Arrangements for press or anything. Um, only only one phone, mm. um, it, but uh, it, it changed it changed the game that week. Did I was going to say? I mean, to what extent can you trace what's happened in snooker the way it took off on television down to Alex Higgins becoming world champion? Well, Im immediately um, uh, this company West Nally, um, who are sports sponsorship specialists. Uh, they 
asked the WPBSA if they could promote the, the, the 1973 championship, which they did um, at uh, City Exhibition Halls. Uh, and if Higgins hadn't won the, won the championship and attracted so much attention in doing so, uh, I remember it was the first. It was the first time that the Daily Telegraph took took a snooker report. They, mm. they they took four paragraphs a day from me, which I thought was a, a real breakthrough. It's more than they take these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, but uh, yeah, that that was the that was the start of the of the expansion. Mm. It was a bit of a closed shop, though, wasn't it? In terms of turning professional, you basically had to be sort of invited in. Yeah, the, the the admission to the professional ranks um, was uh, at the pleasure of a committee of existing players. Uh, <laughs> it was not not the not the ideal system. I, I remember Patsy Fagan, uh, you know, who later mm. won the UK Championship. He was turned down twice, you know, mm. quite quite wrongly, and they 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 spent years, you know altering the system without ever quite getting it right and of course it wasn't until 1991 that they threw their ranks completely open and nobody could argue then. Yeah. In the midst of all this uh, Clive you started snooker scene in, in 1971 what, what's the story behind how that came into existence? Uh, in 19, December 1966 I was appointed to edit a, a, a long a long-standing magazine called Billiards and Snooker which had originally been called The Billiard Player and it was owned by the Billiards Association, who then controlled the whole game, amateur and professional. Um, so I, I, I did that, but I, uh, after a pretty short uh, space of time, I started to fall out with... <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with, with, uh, with the chairman, who at the time was, was, was Jack Carnham, who wanted me to give him personal publicity and he certainly wanted me to agree with all his opinions um, uh, and uh, to cut a long story short uh, after turning it from um, a record loss to a record profit I was uh, I was sacked um, but I thought well I, I quite enjoy doing a magazine so at three weeks notice I started a magazine called World Snooker of all things um, and 15 months later uh, the Billiards Association came crawling back and paid me £1,000 to take them over. Oh. And, <laughs> and so that's when we, we changed the name to, to Snooker Scene. Could you have imagined that 44 years later you'd still be, you'd still be doing it? Uh, well, <laughs> you, you don't look much more than a month ahead, do you, really? <laughs> I, 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 certainly, I certainly have always enjoyed doing it. Mm. It's always been... Uh, part of my life, but although of course I've been been very busy with other with other things, commentaries, books, etc., etc. Uh, but uh, it's part of me now. Mm. So in the seventies, you've started snooker scene. Alex Higgins has won the world championship. Could you have imagined though that the game would become established the way it has on television? Because it was still really the pop black, and then there was just sort of bits and pieces here and there on the television. It, it hadn't sort of taken over the schedules as it would in, in the eighties, had it? Well, you couldn't possibly have predicted it. We were very glad of the scraps of television coverage we could get. But, of course, the Crucible in 1977 and even more in 1978 when the whole thing was covered, that sort of changed everything because the viewing figures meant that the BBC wanted more snooker, ITV wanted to get in on the act, mm. um, and uh, snooker was then 
transformed beyond recognition. Mm. And of course, the other thing about the game in the 70s was uh, the, there wouldn't have been that many places to play. The Northern Snooker Centre opened, I think, 1974, and then obviously when television came in, more and more open. But the Northern, that was a, a real foresight, wasn't it, by Jim Williamson to open that in Leeds? It was. Every, everybody told him he was mad to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he did it. Yeah. Uh, and it's still one of the best clubs in the country now, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. In those days, the centre of the game wasn't so much um, uh, snooker centres or snooker halls, um, but uh, the clubs, conservative clubs, labour clubs, you, know, you name it, all sorts of clubs, that's, that's where most players got their apprenticeship, so to speak. Mm. Let's talk about sponsorship then. It started to sort of come in, and, and a lot of people may not know that we have you to thank for the masters, don't we? Because you sort of you sort of helped that come into being. Well, I, I, I did uh, indirectly. Um, what happened was that at the time, amongst my other activities, I was managing uh, Jonah Barrington, who was the world squash number one, and uh, I was trying to drum up some sponsorship for him. And I went to see West Nally uh, in uh, in London. And um, they, they agreed to do something and um, they said, well, you've got any more ideas for us? And um, at the time, um, uh, I, I put up a, a, a thing called the Park Drive 2000, which was a series of, uh, which was a four man round robin uh, playing each other three times each um, with the top two contesting a final. And Peter West was was the West of West Nally, who was very well connected to the BBC, and he got the final of each Park Drive 2000 on television. And uh, that was for Park Drive, and Gallagher's, uh, with their Benson and Hedges brand, uh, were, were part of, the, part of the same group. So that, that led, led on in turn to uh, the Masters starting in 1975. Yeah, Benson Hedges, of course, uh, one of a number of tobacco companies that uh, that put money into the game. It made sense to them, didn't it? Because it was snooker was largely seen as a, as a working class game, and also it was sort of new on television as well. So it's something, it something new to be involved in. And the, the number of hours mm. that the, the snooker tournaments got on television, they they they, they liked that. Mm. And of course, you could smoke on television as well. You could actually smoke when you were playing if you wanted to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. unlike today, of course. Uh, so the BBC, obviously. Uh, vitally important to, to this story and uh, you mentioned Nick Hunter he, he had a bit of vision about him didn't he, he sort of recognised that snooker could pull pull the audiences in Yeah, it, 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 he knew that snooker had dramatic content and it could be sustained for, for hours mm. on occasion of course you, there's always the chance of a one-sided match but the, the close matches were, were very dramatic and the, the public liked it mm. He asked you to commentate, didn't he, with about half an hour's notice at the World, Cha the world Championship? <laughs> well, yeah, uh, this was the 1978 uh, World Championship. I'd done a few commentaries for ITV, and uh, uh, in 1978 was the first time um, that two commentators, two lead commentators were needed uh, at the Crucible. And I put myself forward, but I hadn't heard anything, so I, I assumed I hadn't got it. And um, I, I pitched up at the, the Crucible shortly before the start of play. Uh, and uh, Nick Hunter came into the press room and he said, would you like to do some commentary for us th this week? And uh, I said, sure, w when? Thinking he'd say, well, next Wednesday or something. He said, oh, and he looked at his watch, in about, in about 20 minutes. <laughs> so, so that's how I started. 
And I think I'm right in saying, was it Willie Thorne, Eddie Charlton, was, was your first match? It, it, it was, and, and it, was very, um, it was a very exciting match as well. I remember that Willie attempted the black, which would have uh, given, him, given him the win, because uh, he was two up for three to play. He attempted the black, which uh, would have given him the win, but uh, he missed it to a far corner, and um, of course he lost 13-12. Eddie Charlton was another very successful player of the 1970s. Three three world finals he reached, although, uh, of course, he, he lost out in that decider to, to Reardon. I mean, he's now sort of a byword for being methodical, slow, if you like, but uh, what were his sort of strengths as, as a player, Eddie Charlton? Well, and, and never say die attitude. He, he was very, very consistent. Um, uh, if if the, a pot was within his normal range of ability, he would pot it. Uh, but he was completely without flair. Mm. Or, although, if you practiced with him, which I did a, a couple of times, he had all the shots. Yeah. He, he just could not couldn't bring himself to to, to use them in a in a match. So he he was snooker's archetypal nearly man. He wasn't a great fan of using side either, was he? he didn't, didn't, no, no, no. He, 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 anything which compromised the pot, you know, was was completely out as far as far as uh, uh, he was concerned. But. You know that conservative attitude did, did cost him, and I think maybe if he could have loosened up a bit, he, he would have won the, the world championship at least once. Well, what he, one thing he did do was make the first century at the Crucible when the world championship went there in 1977. Now you were there at the Crucible for the first one. Was there any sense that you know snooker sort of found its home that first year? On the very first day at the Crucible, this was in 1977, I, th- I, 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 sat, I sat in the arena and I thought, this is different. And, and even in 1977, when only the semi-finals and final were televised, it was clear that, that, that snooker, uh, due to the enterprise of the promoter, Mike Watterson, it, 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 had, it had taken a, a, a big step forward. And of course, in, in 1978, with daily coverage, this was this was multiplied because the viewing figures were absolutely astounding. Mm. And in terms of the sort of press contingent, Clive, you were there in '77. Was anyone else there covering it? Well, uh, Janice Hale, who very sadly died uh, very recently, um, started a, a, as a secretary in my office, but she uh, got interested in snooker. Um, by going to the the Higgins Spencer 1972 final, actually, which was just down the road from our office, and she gradually um, started to do her own reports the, the, for, for various um, newspapers that, 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 we, that we work for. And uh, before very long, she was capable of writing for a national newspaper herself, which was very useful because as soon as I began to commentate um, on tournaments there was a, there was a severe limit on on how many how much newspaper coverage I could also cope with but uh, Janice uh, Janice took that over and uh, uh, she she was very good very good at it and I suppose in terms of the papers once it started appearing on snooker started appearing on television they couldn't really ignore it because it had become something that people were talking about and, and wanted to read about that's true dave you, you could you, you you could say that but they don't seem to have too much trouble ignoring <laughs> it now <laughs> true yeah i mean but did you notice it, it was sort of suddenly picking up once the BBC oh yeah, oh it, it it was it was an explosion mm. uh, 
in the in the early seventies, uh, Everton's news agency, which is part of snooker scene or the other way about, whichever you look at it, uh, was doing other sports as well. But snooker got so big that we just dropped everything else because we couldn't cope with it. Mm. Uh, and uh, e even with even employing other journalists, so uh, you know, snooker got very big very quickly. Uh, and of course, the downside of that was that it, it outgrew its administration very 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 quickly. The, the the WPBSA being run by just four or five players with no particular business aptitude, you know, was was not really the best way to. To, to safeguard um, Snooker's future. Mike Watterson had a lot of aptitude, didn't he? But he kind of basically got shafted in the end, didn't he? He, he, <laughs> he did. There's no, there's no other way to put it. Uh, uh, he, he also uh, founded uh, the, the, the UK Championship in, in 1977 uh, and um, several other tournaments, the World Team Championship, uh, the International Masters. There was an International Masters. He, he was... Uh, Unquestionably, Snooker's uh, uh, leading promoter, but people get jealous, don't they? Or some people do. And um, uh, as you so kindly put it, uh, uh, the, the the some insiders at uh, WPBSA put their heads together and basically uh, robbed him of what he built up. Mm. Let's talk about the, the last World Championship of the 1970s. A very significant one because it, it was won by Terry Griffiths, who was a first season professional. Um, how big a shock was that? Was there any sort of expectation beforehand that, that someone like Terry could go all the way and win it? There wasn't. Uh, Terry Griffiths had turned professional uh, that year, having won the, the English Amateur Championship a couple of times, um, because Welsh players were entitled to enter it in, in, in those days. Um, he was he was uh, in the qualifying. Um, uh, everybody knew that he was a good player, but uh, Reardon and Spencer were, were, and Higgins were kings then. Uh, certainly, nobody envisaged him winning it, and and and, and Terry himself said that um, getting through qualifying was quite a big thing for him because it enabled him to pay off pay off what he owed on his car <laughs> uh, but uh, when he got to the crucible he he he, he showed very quickly that he, he got some something that perhaps the the older players didn't suspect that he'd got he beat Perry Mans who had reached the final the previous year he beat him and then he beat he beat Higgins in a, in a terrific match 13-12 which was one of the best matches uh, I've ever seen uh, and he beat, he beat Eddie Charlton, which was an extremely long match. Uh, <laughs> Unusually for those two. <laughs> and uh, then he beat, he beat Dennis Taylor in the final. So it, 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 was, it, it was really an extraordinarily quick rise from anonymity, basically, to, to fame. Yes, and the significance was widespread, wasn't it? But Joe Johnson told me that, he, that the, when Terry won the World Championship, that's the reason that he turned professional, because he, he'd been sort of umming and ahhing about taking the plunge, and he, he thought, well, if Terry can come through like this, there's no reason why, why other players shouldn't. And I think a lot of amateurs took the same view. It, it did kind of, it did usher in a, a new age, didn't it? A new, a new bunch of players. It, it, it did, no question. And did, is it a surprise to you that he didn't win it again? I know obviously there was a lot of, Terrific player, Steve Davis, most particularly. I think he beat him something like seven times at the Crucible. But 
was it a surprise to you that having broken through and won it in his first season, he, he didn't become world champion again? Well, the problem was that, that, that a lot of players trying to stop him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and, and in particular, as you've mentioned, Steve, Steve Davis. Um, uh, the number of times you win something, it, it, it depends on a lot of factors. Perhaps sometimes um, the, 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 the player who's supposed to win it gets knocked out and then that player who's, who's done the giant and himself gets knocked out and somehow or other the, the draw opens up. And it never quite did uh, for Terry. Uh, I think his, his big... Uh, his big misfortune, really, was to be in the, in the Davis era. Although he, 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 would, he would tell you differently because uh, Davis inspired him to work on his own game. He, he was a better player uh, later, but that, that didn't mean that, that he was going to win it again. Yeah, and the point is as well, he's been world champion. Not, not everyone has been. Mm. Well, he was the last winner of the 1970s, and I think that's an appropriate point to wrap it up. Thank you to Clive for his uh, reminiscences, and thank you to, to you for listening. I'll just remind you, you can subscribe to Snooker Scene if you go to our website, snookerscene.co.uk. You can contact me on Twitter, at Dave Hendon. That's at Dave Hendon. If you have any feedback, things you'd like to hear on the podcast. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.